Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Uh, this is Dr. Simon, Larry Simon, and the show is The Stories We Live By, and today I want to talk about stories involving education, um, the kind of stories that guide education, uh, my story concerning education, and um, I think this is incredibly important. It's interesting to me that uh, I've been doing this now well over a year, although too sporadically. Uh, I digress for a second. I did have surgery last Monday this time. I thought when I got home, uh, maybe from the surgery, I would be in a good mood to do a show. The problem was that uh, I was still under the influence of the anesthesia, and to prevent pain, uh, the nurse before I left gave me two Percocet I don't know if any of you have ever taken Percocet, but man, that is some drug. Uh, they could take your appendix out with a dull knife, and you wouldn't know it. Um, you just wouldn't know, or you would know it, but you wouldn't care. That's some painkiller, some weird stuff. Uh, the, I won't get into the constipation that it produces, but uh, that's a tough drug. Anyway, so I decided I couldn't do a show. Um, so I'm going to uh, do my show on education, and it dawned on me, I've never done one on education specifically. Um, if there's a punchline to this show, and I don't think I'll finish today, I'll probably have to carry it over to next week, uh, that is, uh, good education is therapeutic, and good therapy is education. And uh, for all of the 40 years that I saw what I used to call patients, uh, which I could now call students of a personal nature, you know, individual students. I also taught in the university, a number of universities, and uh, my wife is a special ed teacher. I've mentioned that from time to time. And it dawned on me uh, uh, that one of my tasks was to understand the overlap between education and uh, psychotherapy, what I called psychotherapy. And the more I looked, the more I realized there was an enormous overlap. Um, for those of you who follow this show, and I hope uh, by the time uh, this is all over, millions of people will follow this show, although I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the, the, um, you know that my preoccupation has become uh, debunking the myth of mental illness, that people who go for therapy are no sicker uh, than uh, anybody else in a metaphorical sense, that these judgments we make that we call psychological diagnoses, whether we're psychiatrists, psychologists, or social workers, are basically moral judgments about behavior that we feel should be different or shouldn't be there. And that basically I believe that people who get into trouble in their lives uh, very often are living by a narrative that needs to be changed and hopefully changed without coercion, without force, and most of the time does not require drugs, uh, particularly the pernicious toxic waste that the drug companies um, are now convincing more and more millions of people in America and all over the world to take as a cure for their troubles. Uh, again, Percocet is a great drug. You really can't be depressed under Percocet. The problem is that uh, it has terrible consequences, terrible physical and psychological consequences, and you can't live a life under these drugs, just as you can't live a life 
under most of the drugs that uh, psychiatry promotes. Maybe in the short term, people feel a little better. But anyway, um, the more I looked, the more I realized that what I did when I sat down with people I called patients was a kind of one-on-one education. I asked questions, I listened to their story, and I tried to, uh, with a non-coercive, non-judgmental way, get individuals to look at the story they were telling, the characters in the story, particularly the character that they were in their own life story, to examine their past and how that past may have contributed to them seeing themselves as a defective character, as a character without hope, as a character without a future, as a character that doesn't deserve love, creativity, happiness, uh, uh, a character who goes through life saying, but I'm a good person, I'm a good person, but deep down not believing for one second that they are a good person. The other thing I noticed is that most of my students and I taught in a community college in, in Brooklyn, New York, as the major uh, institution that I taught, uh, were really not psychologically different than the people I saw in the mental health clinic where I worked. Uh, fewer of them were diagnosed as schizophrenic or psychotic, but a good proportion, a, non, a nice proportion, were just as messed up diagnostically, and the kind of story they lived by was just as messed up um, as the people uh, in the clinic. What I began to realize is that much of how I taught really was uh, antithetical to the direction I wanted to go. And I want to explore that today. And so as the years went by, and again, I had a very long career, 40 years, not long enough from my perspective now. Uh, I do have days uh, as my knees continue to deteriorate and uh, my, my uh, life as a tennis player gets shorter and shorter, uh, that I had stayed longer in an intellectual realm where my mind and my mouth uh, um, gave me my personal satisfaction rather than trying to do this uh, physically. And where I live in this community, uh, card games are a very big thing. And I, I, I don't understand how people, I don't, I really do, can't put myself in a position where I can see people playing cards every afternoon and evening, six or seven days a week, and, and apparently enjoying themselves. But that's, not, my, that's you know, not their problem. I guess it's mine. So I want to explore some of the uh, views I developed of formal education uh, about school. And that's really what I want to talk about school uh, and what I learned and how I changed my role as a teacher. Um, and that anybody who is a teacher in any formal sense, may find what I say uh, sensible or, as many of my colleagues did, find it absolutely off the walls. Uh, but like Mark Twain, the more people who disagreed with me, the more I felt I was probably right. And the more I was attacked viciously for my ideas, the more I realized they thought I was right because if I really was just a nutty guy promoting uh, silly ideas, I would either receive pity uh, or I would have been ignored, not really attacked the way ultimately I got attacked. So let's start with the educational process and, and analyze it from a psychological and a social point of view and uh, from what I would might call a psychotherapeutic point of view. The first thing you have to realize uh, is that the story that, that we're enfolded in is Darwin's evolutionary story. We are the product of evolution. 
And one of the most remarkable things about us as an animal is that it takes longer for us to reach maturity where we can live on our own than any animal anywhere on the planet. And not just by a little, I mean by a lot. Now, the higher you go in the complexity, in the neurological, in the brain complexity of organisms, the longer that developmental phase takes place. And so the second longest phases are uh, the higher mammals, the ones that really do seem in many ways to imitate or develop along lines that um, not give us a run for our money, but where there's a genuine overlap. So, for example, uh, chimpanzees, the gorilla families, they have a very long uh, childhood as well. Nothing, however, compared to a human being. And the question we'd have to ask is, why from an evolutionary point of view should we have to be uh, uh, under the care of adults for such a tremendously long time? And the answer can't be because it takes us so long to grow up, because that's the starting point. It does take us so long to grow up. Um, I thought about this for a long time, and I tried to do some reading on it, and it was apparently I was one of the few people, at least that I'm aware of, who asked the question, why? What's the purpose? And it seems to me the answer was staring me in the face all along. We need to grow up at such a slow pace because to live in a complex society, to become part of a family, to become part of a school, to become part of a, of a larger society, a human society, requires such an enormous complexity of skills. It takes such a long time to learn to become uh, an effective human being that um, we need all kinds of help, all kinds of role models, and it has to take a long time because the complexity of the life we all live and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, because I think that the complexity is becoming more than most of us really know how to deal with or can continue to develop skills to deal with. But that complexity is so great that growing up takes a long time. And it's getting, uh, my, my, it's clear why uh, it's taking such a, lo a longer time. Uh, you have, uh, go back even 100 years, uh, if you lived on a farm, if you lived in, in a hunter-gatherer society of some type, um, by the time you were 13 or 14, you were an adult. Physically, you were an adult. You didn't have to. Uh, you didn't have to develop skills beyond a certain point. The kind of social skills that require living in a city, that require living uh, if you're going to earn your living as a professional of some type, are so enormous that it it's no longer 13 or 14, uh, but. Um, 18, 19, 20, a majority of Americans now try to send their children to college. And graduate school is becoming uh, a, a requirement. So that in a sense, 23, 24, 25 is no longer a ridiculous kind of a, an age to see people still not earning their own living, not living on their own, not marrying, not having children, uh, but basically struggling to become an effective adult. And my definition of an effective adult, if you've been watching or listening to my show, is to be a creative citizen. And by a creative citizen, I mean an individual who's part of society, who's in society, but not fully of it. 
that you retain your own individual voice, your own individual song, your own individual perception of things. Um, and I don't think most people end up that way. Um, if you look at what's going on in our society today, uh, maybe there'll be a rebirth of that as a goal. But I'll talk about that in a bit. So to live uh, in, in, in a rapidly changing society is to require more and more years of development. I think that in some ways the development required by our society, which is becoming more and more complex and complicated by the hour, requires that you never stop developing. And when growth stops, death sets in. There's no such thing as standing still. There really is no such thing as standing still, particularly when the changes are swirling around you. Now, if we look at the needs of a growing individual, a developing individual in our complex society, uh, it's clear that for most of us who've had children, we're not able to provide them with all the necessary tools and skills uh, to become a creative citizen. Uh, most of us cannot teach our children all that they will need to know. Most of us, of course, are struggling to earn our own livings, and so uh, the combination of needing outside help to raise our children has created more and more of a culture that depends upon uh, public institutions, private institutions, non-familial institutions to help raise our children, and we call most of those school. And so the function of a school, it seemed to me, uh, is to uh, help develop children who have a narrative uh, that contains skills, that contains uh, ideas, that contains a variety of elements to allow them to, at some point or another, become a creative citizen, to take their place as a genuine individual, as a part of society, but not fully of it, uh, not to be part of the mob, or not to end up in prison, or end up in locked up in a mental institution, because their individual style of dealing with uh, life and society was so destructive to themselves and others that it simply wouldn't be morally acceptable. Right? So uh, we have this, this tremendous demand for these institutions. If we examine these institutions, and again, whatever I say today doesn't cover any all institutions. It doesn't cover it at all. Um, there is wide variation in schools of all levels, but I do want to make some generalizations and talk about schools from the point of view of the narratives that have been guiding my professional and personal life increasingly over the last years. And that is, if you look at how schools operate, they have a politics. And as I've discussed on uh, this show many times, um, politics can be looked at in three ways. One is the authoritarian, totalitarian form of politics. Another is democratic, uh, institutional-type politics. And the third is anarchy, where um, there is no relationship between authority and the individual which may be a good thing or may be a bad thing. It may be wished for, it may not be wanted, it may be the, we seek to avoid it. That's a complicated issue, but I think there are three kind of politics, and in many ways they merge into one another, although each is definable in certain ways. 
most of our schools are basically politics of the authoritarian and the totalitarian nature. And what these schools demand is a kind of a blind obedience to uh, the hierarchical order in the school. So that if we look at this hierarchical order, what we see is that the students are to be obedient to the teacher and the teachers are to be obedient to the principal and the administration and the administration is to be obedient to the public politicians, the people who do the funding. And in a hierarchical authoritarian situation, obedience is important above all. The problem from my point of view is that obedience leads to a death of creativity. It doesn't lead to an individual who says, I think, I want, but an individual who says, we think, we know, in which there's a kind of a clawing that takes place to hold down those below and to worship, uh, adulate, kiss the ass of, uh, fawn and grovel to those above. And unfortunately, most of my experiences in most educational institutions have been of that nature. Now, increasingly, there is a lack of respect for authority. Authority in our culture right now uh, seems to be uh, held in unbelievable contempt at all levels. So the politicians who control our schools are themselves being ignored and laughed at because they are seen as corrupt and inept. And the um, uh, uh, teachers are not being given the respect that they need, uh, which they're not earning in many cases. And the result is not a growing democracy, but a growing kind of an anarchy. At the point at which you have to have children searched for knives and guns as they come into school, you're not talking about an armed camp. You're not talking about an educational institution that produces creative citizens. When children are afraid that they're going to be killed by their peers and see their teachers as inept and unable, and their parents even, unable to, to, to help them and protect them, you have, I think, a deadly situation. Certainly, uh, development doesn't proceed along the lines required by the society for able-bodied and, and skillful uh, individuals who live by a narrative that at once is a shared narrative of society and its needs and at the same time a narrative in which individuals see themselves as worthy and able to express individual ideas that uh, grow within the soil of society and add to the wealth, the pleasure, uh, and the effectiveness of that society. I'm not sure anybody who looks at our society right now uh, uh, sees, well, I'm sure there are, but I don't know any. Uh, uh, the, the, the thing of what to do is that some say, well, we need more authoritarianism. We need to, you know, start killing, beating, and, 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 uh, and degrading. And others who say uh, it's too late, uh, and I'm not sure where I sit on the issue because I do see things as very late and our schools increasingly as ineffective in dealing or producing large numbers of children who are anything but overweight, diabetic, 
and really unable to think, read, or develop the kind of a narrative that I've been talking about in all of these shows. Um, the, the, the democracy that I talk about, that I think is, is what we need in all schools, does not say there isn't authority. But it's an authority that says, I am the authority, but I recognize and I respect your integrity as an individual. And while you have to listen to me, I also have to listen to you. That you have to have input and be empowered to make the kind of judgments that will allow you to say, I still need to develop, I need to grow. And that requires something of a dialogue as well as a top-down authority. Uh, let me discuss within this context grades. Uh, I should add that the kind of thing that psychiatry and authoritarian schools want to produce and that more and more we have counselors in school and psychiatrists in school and, and psychologists in school and children being observed by their teachers and given diagnostic terms is children who are in any way different are given one of the growing number of diagnoses and put into a treatment that's not a treatment at all but a, an attempt to shut them down so that they become what I call happy morons. That is, they stop causing trouble the kind of trouble that a real individual causes. You see. And I think we have to uh, evaluate whether a child is being destructive or merely challenging our authority as the teacher or as the parent, or whether the teacher is being destructive or merely challenging in a respectful way the knowledge and the skill of the principal, and that the administration within the school has to have a voice, a clear voice, to the politicians. What amazes me is how the politicians continue to produce uh, 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 ways for schools to behave when the politicians know nothing about education. If we were to have some kind of a democratic school system producing creative individuals, creative citizens, the teachers would have and the people within the school would have the largest amount to say about how those schools should be run and how the money should be spent that parents and, and society put into the schools. In, it would have to be because who can possibly know more about teaching than the people within the schools? Who could? I can't imagine who it could be other than the people who are on the ground in the institutions. When politicians start fighting wars 5,000, 6,000 miles away and ignore what their generals and their soldiers are telling them, when the soldiers can't let the generals know what they're experiencing, you have not an anarchy, but a one-way authoritarianism in which people who have no idea what they're really talking about because they're not experiencing those problems are not experiencing difficulties on the ground, so to speak, and therefore can't adjust their stat narratives, can't develop the necessary skills to become a seamless part of those that they lead. And what you have is catastrophe. 
And I'm sorry, but the last eight years have been a catastrophe in our society. Top down, everything hidden. Uh, the people on below uh, being told uh, that they're not godly enough if they disagree with those in, on top. And this permeating every level of our society. Producing large numbers of very unhappy but very unskilled individuals. We have a situation in which more and more children do not read, do not develop the kind of a narrative that will hold facts. And I want to talk about that at some real length. Uh, if I don't get to it today, I'll just let this run into tomorrow, into next week. Uh, what we have, uh, what we need, are children who are excited to learn, uh, adults who are excited to learn, not those who are bored to death by top-down monologues that do not take their interests, their values, or anything about them as human beings into consideration. And increasingly, that's where we're going. Either schools that are anarchies that the police have to control, or schools that are authoritarian and top-down, and if there are democratic institutions, uh, it was not my happy uh, experience to become part of them for the last 40 years or talking to teachers, uh, 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 including my wife and many, many others, because I've been involved, so heavily involved, with education at all levels uh, who have experienced what I think is the ideal, my value. And it is my value, of course. So, I mean, when a teacher tells me that they have serious bladder problems because teachers can't go to the bathroom while they're in the front of the class, and if they have to go, they have to take their students and line them outside the bathroom while they go and do their business. And nobody thinks that this is a problem that has to be remedied immediately. What you have is that the teachers treated like children who then turn around and treat their students as if they were inept children. Uh, and, and this goes on up and down the line, and nobody really develops the kind of creative skills, that kind of individuality that says, I am me, yet I willingly participate in a society that I am a part of. Uh, what do we learn? It's simple. What we learn is what we are presented, what is available to us to learn. If it's not available, we can't learn it. If, if there are no books, we can't read them. If there are no teachers, we can't interact with them. Uh, if, we, if we lack uh, a saw and a hammer, we can't become a carpenter. We can't do without the tools uh, and the situations that we learn about whether these are more intellectual, whether it's learning to cook, whether it's learning to make shoes, if we don't have the opportunity to engage those skills, then uh, we don't learn. Is that simple? Uh, we have to provide those things to our children. And if we can't provide them, uh, they won't learn it. It could be just as well that these things are on the other side of the moon because uh, we do, as individuals, creatively change the society we live in by adding our individual voices to the music, to the art, to the technology of that society. But if it doesn't exist for us, 
if we're looking at it from uh, an institution or we're looking at it from the point of view that we could be in outer space, there is no way we can deal. We can't deal with it. So the, one of the most important things involved in education is the availability of those resources that will allow the development of the intellectual and the skill level of the individual to change. But the second interesting thing about this is interest. We don't learn unless we find it relevant to learn. I've always been amazed in my own life and others when I look around at the things that people spontaneously become interested in. And there is nothing in the entire world that somebody is not interested in. I mean, one person looks at bugs and says, ugh, that's disgusting. And some other kid looks at bugs and says, wow, aren't they fantastic? I'd like to spend my life trying to study and understand bugs. Somebody looks at a loaf of bread and says, that's good to eat. And somebody else says, gee, how do you make a loaf of bread like that? Can I make it better? Personally, one of the nicest things that happened to me was when I took my first psychology course. Why did I fall in love with psychology and the very word psychology? Like most of the people I ask who love things like bugs or food or, or have all kinds of strange interests, one person falls in love with one sport and somebody else says, I would never want to be involved with sports. Or people who just love to play cards. I mean, there are so many areas to become interested in. And I, how lucky I felt myself to be at the moment I took my first psychology course. And I liked the professor, although boring wasn't the word, but it didn't matter. I had found my home. And I have never questioned that home in all the years that I have struggled to become a psychologist and all the changes that I have gone through, and unfortunately, all of the conflict it brought me into with my colleagues who simply wouldn't hear about the changes that I uh, was suggesting because of how potentially difficult it would be to say, I can't earn my living at something by misnaming it. I can't say that I'm educating somebody when, in fact, what I am earning my money is through insurance that says I have to diagnose them as being sick and giving them treatment. Uh, my hero was Thomas Zass. I interviewed him. If you go back into my archive, I have a wonderful uh, interview with him and a wonderful colleague, good friend of mine, uh, out in Albuquerque, too bad he has to live 3,000 miles away from me, uh, Lou Wynn. We interviewed him. And when I first read his stuff, I said, this guy is nuts. But somehow, it, it, it stuck with me. And my whole life as a psychologist changed dramatically and happily the moment I realized he was right. Mental illness is a myth. In order for someone to be sick, you have to have a real physical illness. And if people had a brain problem, as the drug companies and psychiatrists claim that brings about their unhappy behavior, their confusion, their schizophrenia, their depression, their hallucinations, then they wouldn't have a mental illness, they'd have a physical illness. Mental illness simply can't exist. The idea is untenable. To be an individual creative does bring you into conflict with society, but inevitably you meet people who are like-minded. 
And it becomes a wonderful experience to grow and a challenge to grow. It is nightmarish to not grow, to sit and recognize that you have to cut off pieces of yourself and sit through an increasingly boring, empty life. What is the emotion that we experience when we sit in a class listening to a lecture of which we have no interest or try to read a book that we're forced to read of which we have no interest? It's called boredom. And what is boredom? I thought about this long and hard. Boredom is a form of anxiety. And as I've said many times in many shows, anxiety is a powerful survival emotion. It says you're in danger in some way. It is the alarm bell that goes off. And what is the alarm bell of boredom? It says you're wasting your life as you see it. Not as your teacher or your parent sees it. And therefore, as a teacher, you have to help children and your students at any level to see the reason you're presenting them that material to bring them in as a part of the process, to listen to their boredom, to listen to why they don't like it. And again, how many children are forced to go in an authoritarian one direction? The content of what they read becomes more important than the fact that they are learning to read. Children can learn to read in a wide variety of materials, something that interests them then the learning to read becomes secondary to the fact that they are reading. I don't know if this doesn't make sense to anybody but me, but the fact is, it does make sense to me. I cannot read a book if I'm not interested in it. Fortunately, at my old age, I can only pick up books that I am interested in. And every once in a while, I'll hear about a book that I didn't know about and say, oh, damn it, damn it. Why didn't I know about that book earlier? Again, in order to learn, in order to grow, you have to have things available to you. You have to be looking for them in many ways. But at the same time, you have to be interested. You have to feel a kinship. What you learn has to be part of your life narrative. It has to be part of that narrative. And it has to challenge the narrative so that the narrative grows, that the narrative changes, that you become part of that other narrative. Nobody who has ever read a book and enjoyed it is the same person when they finished. Every time I have written a book, I was ready to write another book. And the reason I was ready to write another book is that I had read, uh, written the book that I wrote. You're not the same. I don't know if any of you who hear this have ever experienced writing an essay. What you sat down to write often doesn't turn out to what you actually write. Eventually, your own unconscious, those parts of your narrative that you're not aware of fully, work their way into the creation of this essay, this article, or whatever it is you're doing. Things aren't neat and easily planned. And the excitement that we all feel when we come up with something that is A, original, but two, really reaches some decent standard. We become aware of just how effective uh, uh, the thing we have done is, even if not everybody likes it. In fact, the more individual it is, 
the few of the people that might like it. Anything that everybody likes really has to be pretty boring, it seems to me. It has to be part of total popular culture. And again, I know I sound uh, 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 like a curmudgeon. My wife tells me I am the ultimate in curmudgeons. More and more of the crap I see on television that appeals to everybody really can't appeal to anybody. It's a kind of a narcotic, a kind of mind-rotting substance that says you are part of a mass and you have nothing to say. Just sit there passively and be inundated by silliness, stupidity, uh, 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 all kinds of, of base emotions, of sentimentality, rather than real pain and real growth. I'm not going to mention any particular shows. Every once in a while I'll watch something on television that seems to have a genuine creative edge that lots of people hate. And I'm sure there are things I hate that other people love that add to their lives. doesn't have to be the same. Once it becomes everybody, once it becomes nothing but a corporate sponsor trying to sell the same product to the most common denominator, everybody, without individuality, you are involved, you are really involved in a kind of a uh, uh, downward spiral and a kind of authoritarianism that is destructive to being a creative individual. Plum Nice says, LOL. I think that's lots of luck. And hello, Angela. Anybody want to add in? Anybody want to ask a question? Anybody want to um, call in? Uh, the number is 646-716-7756. And uh, I think I'm running out of time. It's almost cocktail hour. Another 20 minutes. Uh, and... Um, I have a really nice bottle of red wine for tonight. And then I'm going to go to the Democratic, the local Democratic Club. A friend of mine has become active and is now on the executive board of the Democratic Club. And hopefully, I'm, oh, laugh out loud. Uh, okay. And um, so if there is nothing else, I think there's six minutes remaining. I'd like to talk about grades and what I began to do uh, with my students towards the latter part of my career, I actually let students grade themselves. And that was seen as so outrageous. It's not that I stopped grading them or giving them my opinion of their work, because as a teacher, I have to believe I know something that they don't know, that I can write to a standard that some of them or most of them can't write to. On the other hand, how do you learn to become your own judge if you're never given an opportunity to be a judge. Anybody here play a sport? I play tennis, or I used to play tennis. And I knew I was doing well, because I can watch television and I can see the pros. And I knew where I was in a hierarchy of players. But I also had immediate feedback. If I hit a ball and it went long, or if I hit a ball and it went into the net, or went out of the bounds, I knew I was not doing something right. I graded myself. And hopefully when I graded myself, it wasn't as an authoritarian. Oh, you dummy, you shit, what, you, what the hell are you doing? Um, that's authoritarian, you know, you're no good, you're no good. And since I'm not as good as Roger Federer, why even try? But in school, you never get a chance. The teacher does the grading. And the student either resents the grade 
or slavishly goes along with the grade. And it was really quite incredible when I gave students an opportunity to grade themselves, how many of them from really authoritarian homes begged me not to do it. You grade me. I'm not able to grade myself. And I said, no, part of that grade has to come from you. You have to be a part of it. Otherwise, you will never set a standard for yourself. You will always be looking for other people to tell you how you're good or how you're bad. And you'll end up with some crappy therapist or somebody running your life, a woman or a man called a husband or a wife, who won't be a husband or a wife, won't be a partner, but will be a kind of a mother or father and will tell you what to dress and where to stand and what to say and everything else about your life. You'll never have an original idea, and deep down you will hate yourself because you'll be bored, because you'll feel you're wasting your life, and you become more desperate as you get older, and you drink more booze and you take more drugs and then end up with Dr. Feelgood and Pill Pusher in their office, and they'll tell you you're depressed, you're confused, you're crazy, you're schizophrenic, you're manic-depressive. They'll give you a label, and they'll give you drugs, and that'll be the end because now you will be the happy moron that uh, uh, society in its basest, worst ways wants you to be. So, thank you for those who are listening. Angelaine, Texas, Plum Nice, those seem to be new names to me. If you like the show, and some of you seem to, give it a five because I find that when people look in the archives, it's the shows with a five, the shows that have a nice rating, where I'm graded well, uh, that uh, get listened to the most, and that makes me very happy, because this is my, mo- most, my main professional outlet at this point, uh, as I live here in the Happy Valley gated community, uh, where I chose to retire, and in which 80% of the time I'm happy I did, and 20%... I say, what the hell did I do to myself? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, you'll see if you go on into the, uh, into the show, it's uh, one to five, one star to five stars. I think that's how you do it. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Next week, Stories About Education Part 2. It's been yummy. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>